And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they laid down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Thank you, Krista. If you'd like to keep that passage open in front of you, and uh, we'll look at that together in a moment, but let's pray as we do that. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the time that we can gather around it now. And we pray that as we do, that you would minister to us uh, by your Spirit, that you would still our hearts uh, from any distractions, anything else that's uh, going on right now, and that you would draw us to, to hear what you have to say now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, what do we need more than anything? As we look our, around our world just now, uh, we see so much conflict, so much hostility, so much injustice, uh, so much suffering. There could be many ways we might respond to that question. Uh, and as we look at our own lives, depending on our circumstances, uh, we might all have different answers to that. Uh, maybe a relationship, uh, or financial stability, or healing from an illness. Uh, last week, we, we began a series in Mark's gospel, Mark's account of Jesus' life, and, uh, and we saw that this is an account of, uh, it tells us about Jesus' identity and his mission, who he was uh, and what he came to do. Uh, and in the passage that we're looking at today, we get right to the heart of Jesus' message. Here in Mark 2, we're given an insight into how Jesus uh, would answer that question, what is our greatest need? And what we discover in these verses is that Jesus, he diagnoses our greatest problem, but he also provides us with the solution. Now, just to remind ourselves of where we are, just to set the scene, last week we left Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil for 40 days. And then the rest of chapter 1, it charts the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he calls his disciples, his first disciples, and starts uh, gaining a reputation as a teacher and a healer. And by the time we arrive at the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus has just returned from a, a preaching tour uh, around the region of Galilee back to his hometown of Capernaum, which was a small town right on the shores of Lake Galilee. You can still visit it today and, and walk around the ruins. 
already word had spread about this great teacher and healer wherever he went. Crowds followed. Even after he took a break from entering towns, people still sought him out. Now, if you've ever uh, been around a famous celebrity, or you maybe seen the pictures on the TV of, uh, of uh, crowds around them uh, wherever they go. I recently watched the uh, Netflix documentary about Beckham, uh, and there's just a, a section of that where you just see wherever he went, crowds followed. There's, he just couldn't be anywhere uh, uh, in public where he wasn't surrounded by people. But, but a, a famous celebrity can at least retreat to their home and get behind the, the security gates. Uh, but there was no such security for Jesus, no such serenity at home. Mark writes verse 1, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no, no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to, to them. And so uh, once word gets out that Jesus is at home, it's not long before a crowd gathered and just invite themselves in. They gather in his house, and they pack the place out so that there's not even any room at the door. But Jesus, he doesn't call security. He, he, he doesn't lock the door. No, he welcomes them in. Mark tells us that Jesus preached the word to them. Now, when we think of Jesus' ministry, we can often uh, maybe think more about the miracles than the teaching, because those are the dramatic things uh, that we read about. But what's clear from the, the various gospel accounts is that all those miracles, they acted as signposts. That's actually what they're called in, in John's gospel, signs, signposts to who Jesus was and what he came to do. It was the message that he preached that made sense of the miracles that he performed. Anyways, Jesus taught the people, Mark tells us verse 3, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So, so four guys turn up with this man in tremendous need. Uh, this guy who was confined to a stretcher, he couldn't walk, he couldn't do anything for himself, he was paralyzed. Now remember, Jesus' place was absolutely packed full. And so when these guys turn up, there is no way that they are going to get in through the front door with a stretcher. There just wasn't any room. So verse 4, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Now they couldn't get in through the front door, so they take their friend up onto the roof and they start digging a hole in it. These guys, they really wanted their friend to see Jesus. They'd heard about all the people that Jesus had been healing, and they were desperate for their friend to be healed. So desperate, in fact, that they started digging into the roof, uh, moving the mud bricks away so that they could get to Jesus. I wonder what was going through that man's mind as he lay on the stretcher next to them. Fear? Doubt, maybe, that any of this was going to work? Longing, maybe hope, that somehow he would be healed. His emotions must have been all over the place. You know, how often had he thought to himself, if only I could walk, then my life would be complete. I could come and go as I pleased. I wouldn't have to rely on anybody else. I could uh, do the things that I want to do. I, I would never complain about anything ever again because I'd have everything that would make me happy. 
How many hours of frustration had he spent longing for an end to his plight? Uh, now, many moons ago, uh, uh, well over 20 years ago, uh, I spent a year playing football or soccer for our American friends uh, in college in the US, in Virginia. And uh, I had two teammates who were tremendous athletes, uh, Gary and Derek. Uh, and sadly, shortly after they finished college, uh, they both, uh, in separate incidents, uh, suffered catastrophic injuries and were paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, and I, I sometimes think about them and, and what life is like for them today, 20 years on. The, the, the frustration that they have had to endure, the shattered dreams, the, the suffering uh, that they go through on a daily basis. I'm sure not a day goes by when they don't long to be able to walk again, to kick a ball again. You know, if you'd asked this man or, or his friends what was his greatest need, they'd no doubt have looked at you confused. Isn't it obvious? It was there for all to see. And Mark tells us that once they had made a hole big enough, verse 4, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So in the middle of his sermon, as Jesus addressed the crowd in his home, suddenly he's interrupted by this guy being lowered down on a stretcher. Now, I've had a couple of hecklers in my time, but nothing like this. This is one surefire way to stop a sermon. And that's exactly what happens in this case. The paralyzed man, he's lowered into the room, and he finds himself at Jesus' feet. This man whose need was so obvious to everybody who looked on, who longed to be healed, he finds himself before this renowned healer. You know, surely this is the moment, the, the moment that his deepest need would be met, the moment that he would be able to walk. But instead of telling this man to be healed, Jesus turns to him and he says, verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. Why would Jesus say that? Everyone could see what this guy needed. Why was Jesus talking about forgiving sins when this man, he clearly needed to be healed? Well, see, here's the thing. Jesus knew something that this man didn't know. He knew that this guy had a far bigger problem than his obvious physical condition, that he had an even deeper need than the one that he was so aware of, that his biggest problem, it wasn't his suffering, it wasn't his condition, it was his, his sin. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He wasn't saying that this man was paralyzed because of his sin. Now, a number of years ago, the then England football manager, there's a common theme with my illustrations, uh, the then England football manager, Glenn Hoddle, he actually lost his job for saying that people who suffer in this life are paying for sins in a past life. And it was a, it was a big hoo-ha, it was a national outcry over those comments, and even the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, got involved. But that's absolutely not what Jesus is saying here. The Bible's very clear that all of us find ourselves in the same boat as the guy in this story. All of us have turned away from God. All of us 
have sinned against Him. And as a result, before we know Jesus, we are alienated from Him. And Jesus says that that is our deepest problem. The paralyzed man, he came to Jesus with his need. But by focusing on his sin, Jesus was showing him his deeper need. Being healed would not have brought this man the contentment that he longed for. Now, of course, first, at first, no doubt, uh, this guy would have been as high as a kite, thrilled with his new life. But sooner or later, he would have realized that having that need met, it would not bring an end to frustration or that sense that, that there was something more to life than that. When we put our hope in someone or, or something, and we believe that all our happiness is tied up with that, that person or that thing, if we see that, that person or that thing as our greatest need, then that wish, that, that longing, whatever it is, it becomes our Savior. We believe that it's what's going to save us from disillusionment and bring meaning and purpose to our lives. It's going to bring rest to the restlessness of our souls. But whatever it is that you think you need, if you get it, you, what you'll find is that it, it, it won't bring the satisfaction that you crave. It will only leave you feeling more empty. Because you'll realize that the, the thing that you put your hope in, it didn't fill the longing in your heart. It ultimately proved to be a failed savior because all along there was a deeper longing, a, a deeper need. And the Bible says that that longing, that need exists within all of us. It can only be filled by the one who placed it there. In the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, we read that God is the one who has set that longing for eternity in our hearts. Now, there was nothing wrong with this man's longing to be healed, just as there's nothing wrong with us having hopes and dreams and, and longings. The problem is, is when we think that getting our deepest longing will save us. Jesus is saying here that only He can be that Savior. Only He can meet our deepest need, because only He can make us right with God. He's the only Savior who will not ultimately fail us, because He is the only Savior who can forgive us. Whatever it is we think we need, Jesus saying, is saying here that He is able to meet our deepest need. Now, if we're Christians here today, uh, then we are a people who have already had our deepest need met. And that reality should have a profound impact on the way that we approach life. We have a Savior. We don't need another one. We don't need to go seeking salvation in a career or in a relationship or in material possessions or in what others think of us. Jesus has already saved us. And as we take that truth to heart, it ought to free us from the quest of seeking salvation in saviors that will only fail us. We don't need to seek our identity in a relationship or in a career because we have been loved and accepted by our Creator, the one who knows all our flaws and all our failings better than we know ourselves. And yet He delights in calling us His. 
Uh, we don't need to store up wealth or, or possessions because we have an eternal security uh, where we have riches that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Uh, when we find ourselves looking for another Savior, we need to remind ourselves and we need to remind each other of the salvation that is already ours in Jesus Christ. We have tremendous privileges uh, and we need to live in the light of them. And it's a salvation that's been secured because of who Jesus is. See, to have our broken relationship with God restored, we need God's forgiveness. And by offering to forgive this man's sin, Jesus was saying something earth-shattering about his identity. And it's something that has life-changing implications for every single person here. You see, when we wrong someone, the only person who can forgive you is the person that you wronged. If someone else steps in to forgive you, that's meaningless because they weren't the person who was wronged. Only the wronged person can forgive. That's how forgiveness works. And so for Jesus to say, son, your sins are forgiven, he is making a radical claim about his identity. And it's the claim that we saw last week, the claim at the heart of the Christian faith, that Jesus is God on earth, and that as God, he is able to forgive sin, because ultimately those sins have been committed against him. And there were some guys there that day who clearly didn't miss what Jesus was saying. We read verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Mark draws our attention to the religious leaders who had made their way to Jesus' house to see what all the fuss was about. And they realized very quickly that, that a claim to forgive sin was a claim to be God. And there was absolutely no way that they were willing to accept that. They couldn't imagine for a second that God would come in this way. That God would come and dwell amongst them in humility. That idea was preposterous it, and it enraged them. And so they immediately accused Jesus of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy was a very serious charge. To claim to be God was a crime punishable by death. And Mark tells us that as they were thinking these things, verse 8, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Jesus knew what they were thinking. And the question that he asks them in response, it's not necessarily that easy to answer. I mean, if you think about it, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? Well, on the surface of it, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, because there's no way of verifying that. Anybody can say that. If you say, get up and walk, people will pretty quickly know whether or not you're a fraud. So Jesus demonstrates that he is who he says he is, 
and that he has the power to forgive sin by telling the man to get up. Verse 10 says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus revealed his identity as he healed this man. It was a miracle, an event that defies the laws of nature. And here we have the creator of the laws of nature suspending and rearranging those laws that he created to enable this paralyzed man to walk. That man left that day with far more than he could ever have hoped. His longing to be healed was met, but so was his far deeper need of forgiveness. But Jesus' question, which is easier, it has another answer. See, by claiming to forgive the man's sin, Jesus knew that he would be accused of blasphemy. He knew that once he declared his identity, there was no going back. He knew that he was taking a step along the path that would ultimately lead to his death. If you were to read on through the rest of Mark's gospel, you'd see that it was this charge of blasphemy that led to Jesus' death on the cross. He was crucified for claiming to be God. But it was through his death that our greatest need was met. It was through his death that forgiveness was secured. It was through his death that the deepest longing of our hearts could be satisfied. A restored relationship with the God who has set eternity in our hearts. The title that Jesus uses in verse 10, Son of Man, it's the name he most commonly used to refer to himself. And it's a name that first appears in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel in chapter 7. And it speaks there in Daniel chapter 7 of a king who will one day rule over all things in a kingdom that will never end. And by taking that title, Jesus was saying that he was that eternal king. You see, Mark's account doesn't end with a crucified saviour. No, it ends with an empty tomb. Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that he would be crucified, and three days later, he would rise again, defeating death and giving eternal life to anyone who trusts in him. Eternal life in a kingdom where there will be no more illness, no more paralysis, no more suffering, no more unsatisfied longings, no more aching hearts, no more sorrow, no more war, no more death. That's the promise that belongs to all who experience Jesus' forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's what Jesus says we need more than anything else. It's the deepest need of the human heart, and it's a need that only he can meet. And he offers it freely to anyone who would receive it today. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank you for uh, the wonderful picture that we have in Mark's gospel. 
of who you are, of what you have done, of how forgiveness can be ours when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we pray that uh, whether we are Christians here today, that you would uh, give us a deeper joy and security as we remember our privileges as your people, of what it means to be forgiven, to, to have all our sins washed away, to have our past forgiven, to have our future secure. What immense joy we can draw from that. And if we're not Christians here today, Lord, I pray um, that that offer of forgiveness would be one that we would take, one that we would receive, a gift that you offer today. And we pray, Lord God, as we come to the table to take bread and wine, we thank you for the visible reminder that we have in the bread and wine of, of that forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.